The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the fifth season of the Combustion Chronicles podcast, where bold leaders combined with big ideas to make life better for all of us. I'm your host, Sean Nason, CEO and founder of Mofi. In these episodes, we'll be exploring the power, influence, and importance of experience ecosystems. To do that, we're bringing together the most unique and influential experience experts in the world for honest conversations about not being okay with the status quo, leading with heart, and getting real about heart sets and mindsets. In case you're wondering, an experience ecosystem is the web of people, touch points, and interactions that combine to create all of the positive and negative experiences we have in the world. When an organization wants to improve customer experience, they're wasting their time if they're not willing to engage and humanize their entire experience ecosystem. It's time to blow up some silos and ignite an experience revolution by putting people first. On this episode, we are diving into the disruption caused when innovation gets accelerated. The COVID-19 pandemic has been a catalyst for speeding up lots of different innovations throughout lots of different industries, including industries who weren't prepared for something new. How are business leaders using experience design to keep up with the pace of change? To start the conversation, we have Braden Kelly. Braden is the Customer Experience and Innovation Solution Director at HCL Technologies. He's a longtime leader of innovation and transformation projects, author and speaker. Welcome to the Combustion Chronicles, Braden. Glad to be here, Jean. Well, Braden, we've known each other a few years and lots has happened over those years in the innovation experience space. So I am really excited to jump in and get your leadership on this episode. You've seen the experience design industry manage lots of changes in your career. And in a recent article on Riding the Data Wave to Digital Disruption, you wrote that today's digital reality requires all companies to think like a technology company or go out of business. That's a pretty bold statement there, Braden. Why is it a kiss of death if companies are not thinking like a technology company? Well, I think it's because of that experience component that you mentioned, Sean, and it's the the fact that, you know, in our digital world, in our digital economy, the digital component of the business has become so important to the experience that if you don't have the digital part of your experience well-formed and well-executed, then you really put yourselves at risk. And because it's easier than ever to start a business and scale it than it has been in the past, it's really easy for a digital native to come in and eat your lunch more so than than before. And so you have to, to constantly be rethinking your business and leveraging the, the tools that are available and minding the experience. Totally agree. Brayden, we talk about oh, at Mofi this experience ecosystem where the digital experience is a part of that ecosystem. And industry research shows that the average lifespan of a company has dropped from 61 years to 18. An executive site promoting continuous innovation as a challenge. Is this actually a good thing that we see companies dropping off a lot sooner than before? 
Well, it's a good thing and a bad thing. And it's and it's definitely a bad thing that executives see continuous innovation or being able to continuously innovate as a challenge because then that means that they haven't architected the organization or the, their current architecture and their current capabilities don't support that. And so I think that it's incredibly important that that organizations take innovation as a core component of their organization and don't think of it as a project. Too often we see innovation <laughs> as a project <laughs> yeah, and that gets you to the end of that project. Maybe you launch something really cool, but unless you want to, to only live for 18 years instead of 61 years, then obviously you're compromising your future. So I think that the, the key is for organizations to look at their infrastructure for innovation and make sure that they're putting the the right capabilities in place, the right elements of flexibility and agility, but at the same time, recognizing which parts of the organization need to have some elements of fixedness so that they can go fast. You know, if you make everything too flexible, then you don't go anywhere. But if you make everything too fixed, then you also don't go anywhere. So to achieve true agility, it, it, it requires a balance between flexibility and fixedness. Let's jump into that, Braden, because we're really interested about this ecosystem concept. And you actually just wrote an article and have a graphic around organizations of the future. And in that, you depict as a kind of distributed modular ecosystem. How close are we to this structure becoming the norm? And how does it help companies manage that rapid change that you're just sitting here talking about? Well, I don't think that we're too close yet, Sean, and that's that's unfortunate. <laughs> Neither do I, so. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it's not surprising because it's a really hard concept and a really hard construct for companies to make the walls of their organization more permeable and to make the boundaries of job descriptions and the talent that they have more permeable as well. Because, you know, the reality is that people hire to a job description, but you don't hire a job description, you hire a person. And that person has talent, skills and abilities and interests and passions. And and sure, there may be a huge intersection between that and the job description. But if you only focus on that, you're missing out on a huge opportunity. So there's a few organizations doing some interesting things around this idea. Cisco has this idea of this the internal internship where they pretty much throw up a project a department needs help with. And then um, the human resources component of the organization supports somebody, say, in finance working on a, a project for marketing. And you know the, that finance person might have incredible marketing skills that they just haven't had a chance to use because they've just always gotten hired for finance jobs. Or that may be where their passion lies. That may be where they're doing all their individual learning. And so I think too often we hire people because of what they've done before, not what they're best at. And organizations that truly want to be innovative need to have ways of having the slack time necessary to allow people to work on other things to have the flexibility in them to allow for redeployment of human resources to new capabilities that the organization needs to build. And I just don't think we're there yet. And yeah. you know, a lot, a lot of that is that we tend to do things the way we've always done them or the way we're rewarded. And so doing new things in new ways is not necessarily always rewarded. And, you know, Brain, again, we talked about this experience ecosystem is the web of people, touch points and experiences that combined to define your experience promise. And so, you know, we really believe at Mophi that if you if you focus on the overall web of experiences and the ecosystem of experiences, this is exactly what you're talking about. 
Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about some business in the heart of business. As I said, lots of people have inventive ideas, but making them real, you have to be able to be bold, take risks about that. And so in your first book, Stoking Your Innovative Bonfire, you cover a great concept called infinite innovation. Most companies are not set up for that type of innovation and fail to grasp that inventors have great ideas, but innovators change the world. Um, I feel like most companies have those tools to go big with innovation, but how do we help them find the courage to act on it? Well, I think that comes down to how you define innovation, and I've always defined it as innovation transforms the useful seeds of invention into widely adopted solutions valued above every existing alternative. And there's a couple of key things that are highlight some of the areas where we run into trouble with innovation. And number one is that tension between invention and innovation. And that was in the the, the quote of mine that you, you read earlier is highlighting that that distinction. You know, invention and creativity are very closely linked. They're also very closely linked to value creation. But to create an innovation, it has to displace something. It has to be so valuable that people are willing to abandon the previous solution, even if it was the do-nothing solution. (laughs) And that's not easy, and that takes time. And I think oftentimes people underestimate how long innovation takes. I mean, if you look at the VCR, if you look at the MP3 player, you look at a lot of technologies, we're talking 20 to 30 years from... (laughs) first invention to wide adoption. If you look at Gorilla Glass and a lot of people have on their smartphones these days, that was invented 50 years before it achieved wide-scale adoption on smartphones and other technology devices. And so sometimes organizations underestimate how long it takes to innovate. If you look at history, you really start to understand how innovation happens and why it's important to invest in putting the infrastructure in place to to make it continuous, to make it move beyond a project basis. And, and that's that's where the infinite innovation infrastructure comes in and pretty much gives you a blueprint or a recipe for moving from a project mindset to a continuous innovation approach within your organization and, and lays out the things, the, the, the components of the infrastructure that need to be in place. And on the, the risk question, that is a very, very big question. It's one that a lot of people are doing very interesting work on it's you know it's a lot about creating psychological safety and understanding that it's not the failure isn't always a bad thing and understanding the difference between failure and mistakes and which one you want to control for and which one you you want to allow and you know we kind of also get stuck on this idea uh, thinking of ourselves as forward thinking organizations like oh we're going to focus on failing fast we're going to allow people to fail fast but it's not really about failing fast it's about learning fast yeah, And you can learn from success just as much as you learn from failure, but only if you're looking for it and only if you have a way of identifying the learning. And so so the key thing that organizations have to do is to to make sure that they they have the conditions in place to empower innovation to to occur. So there's definitely a lot for organizations to to unpack and to invest in and if they want to to make innovation repeatable and and possible yeah it just can't be a checkbox anymore and i think we went through a time and a period within organizations and corporations that oh we do innovation that's part of our core values you know we hire a chief innovation officer but they really haven't changed their system and becomes a systemic problem within an organization if you don't change the system right right you have to 
change the system. If you're going into new areas, if innovation leads you into new areas, you have to invest in new capabilities. Yep. I mean, when, when I, Apple decided to go into the, the music player business, they weren't making consumer electronics. They didn't, they weren't in the music industry. You know, they had to, to go build these capabilities to hire people they didn't have in their organization to make that, that ecosystem possible. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about change. And the reality of it is, is because of the pandemic, right, as we're coming on the outside of that, that change is not going to slow down at all. So how can a focus on experience design help companies be less rigid and more fluid while moving into this new norm and this new future? Well, I think that, you know, a focus on experience design will allow organizations to think bigger, to take more of a systems approach than a, a you know point solution approach to things. And you know, if you look at experience design, people are familiar with product design, you know, service design has been an increasingly popular topic. Uh, you know, process <laughs> design has been around forever. Systems design is, you know, sort of bringing things together. You know, then we have customer experience and user experience. And now more people are talking about employee experience. These are all important topics, but they're usually thought of by themselves. And if you're really trying to design the experience, you have to think of all of these things working together. And innovation is also a systemic ecosystem type area. And, you know, when I talk about innovation, I talk about it all being about value. And I break down three, three key areas that drive value that people need to think about. And that's value creation, value access, and value translation. And usually, most people, when they're talking about innovation, they think all about value creation. But if you don't translate the value for people effectively, then your invention will never become an innovation. If you don't build the right experience and ecosystem around your, your core idea, then you also won't help people access that value and your invention will never become an innovation. Wow, that's awesome. Well, well, Braden, thank you so much for all these nuggets that you've dropped on the listeners today. You know, we've come to this part that we do with every one of our guests within the podcast, and we call them the combustion questions. So there's some randomly selected questions that I don't even know until I start to ask them to you um, because they're given to me. So, Braden, are you ready for your combustion questions? As ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Combustion question number one is, outside of your professional work, what topic could you spend hours talking about? Probably basketball. I just love basketball because it's a team sport and it requires seeing into the future a little bit to be successful in the role that I play, which is typically point guard. And you have to be able to see all the moving pieces. So probably basketball. I love it. I'm a huge college basketball fan, Braden. So we can talk about that forever. <laughs> all right. Combustion question number two. Fruits or vegetables? Definitely fruits. Why? Well, I love mangoes. I love passion fruit. Uh, you know, I love a lot of the, uh, the tropical fruits, guava and others. So I'd definitely say fruits. Although carrots make a, a wonderful addition to a smoothie. Awesome. Well, again, Brayden, thanks so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and I hope you can join us again um, on the Combustion Chronicles. Thanks, Sean.
Let's shift now to focus on how experienced professionals and healthcare are adjusting in the accelerated world of innovation. To cover this topic, we are so excited to have Diane Stover Hopkins. Diane is the founder and CEO of Xpeers, an in-demand consultant, speaker, and writer, and she has extensive experience blending marketing and experience strategies primarily in the healthcare industry. Welcome to the Combustion Chronicles, Diane. Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me. You know, Diane, you have seen a lot of changes happen in healthcare, and you were one of the first chief experience officers in the U.S. healthcare industry, and maybe actually the first, if I remember right, but you started in marketing. So how do you see healthcare differently since pivoting from marketing to experience and this experience ecosystem space? Well, I see it as a very natural progression back in the early 2000s, late 1999 area was when our one of the times our industry, the healthcare industry was under attack from many different areas. And we weren't going to cut budgets our way out of these problems. And that's when a focus on innovation came seeping into the organization I was at in Indiana with our CEO. And as I explored innovation, and explored what other companies not in healthcare did with innovation. And we did over 80 inno visits to companies like uh, Whirlpool and Harley Davidson and Procter and Gamble and DuPont. We realized that when you're in a service company like a healthcare is, that you're not making widgets that you innovate, you have to innovate from being a service to an experience. So when we looked at our marketing, we saw all this energy and effort and money we were spending positioning our brand, making promises to the community and to doctors and patients. And Tom Peters has a model called the future shape of the winner model, which says certain things have to be in alignment for you to be a long-term winner. And when we studied that, we realized that one factor called brand, how you represent yourself to the world, what you promise your customers, that goes through your staff, your employees, to the experience that is ultimately delivered. And so that's where I saw the connection with marketing and experience design. And that if you're going to spend $2 million on a campaign for your new bariatric surgery program to attract people from five states, and you promise less pain, less blood, less time in the hospital, and then you go through the people that had to deliver that, the surgeons, the frontline staff, whomever, and they're not getting less bleeding and less time in the hospital, let's save the $2 million till the experience is what we say it is. And so that became a, a way to have the experience be what the patients deserve and the brand and market communications have to be authentic with what we deliver. So Diane, I love this. And recently, a former guest of ours here on the podcast, Blake Morgan, she posted something around, what if 5% of experiences would change in the healthcare system? How different would healthcare be? Mm-hmm. And I actually, I actually wrote back and commented on it on her LinkedIn. I said, Blake, what if just 1% of healthcare would change? How different would experience be, right? And, and you've seen that a ton, Diane. And you say it's not good enough to have leadership create an experience initiative, which, by the way, I give a huge amen to. It has to become instinct for everyone in the organization. Why is that? And how do you make it happen? Well, you know, in healthcare and in any industry, but healthcare is probably more important because life and death is part of every day. You have 10,000 people in a health system. You cannot possibly prepare 10,000 people for everything that's going to come their way with a family or a patient every day, every week, every month. 
You don't, you can't anticipate what they're all going to be. And let me tell you some of the stories you wouldn't believe. And so since you can't prepare them for everything that may come their way, we want to develop an instinct so that whatever comes their way, they know what to shoot for and how high to shoot for. And they've got permission The culture gives them permission to shoot high, to deal with whatever may come their way. There's a few things in healthcare we do to do that. One, you have to have a commitment to co-creation. The frontline people see what we don't see in the boardroom. They know what we don't know in the boardroom. And they're part of our team, yet very inconsistently do we leverage their knowledge and insights. And I'm talking about the valet parker, the nurse at the bedside, the home care delivery people. Who These people are at the front with our customers, seeing real life, seeing where we do well, where our procedures get in the way. And we typically don't do a great job leveraging that. So co-creation is the way to leverage that. Now, co-creation, I've had many health systems tell me, oh, we do co-creation. We do survey monkey <laughs> surveys once a month with the staff in the ER. And, you know, okay, I guess it's better than nothing. But co-creation is bringing people together from different positions, high, you know, doctors with cleaning people and, and the mix of everybody in between and having them share their perspectives of what's going on in, you know, the company in the world of our servicing our customers and learning from one another and feeling comfortable with one another. And it's important to make sure that it's also fun and engaging. So that's the first part of it. The second part of that long answer to your question is that the instinct needs to be to get a workforce of more innovative problem solvers. When I ask a room full of healthcare professionals, what percentage of their day is problem solving? 90%, 95%, 98%. And then I say, what exposure have you ever had to becoming a better, stronger problem solver, more innovative problem solver? Nobody yet in seven years has raised their hand. And so here we have people dealing with all kinds of crazy problems, customer problems, who are doing them either through their gut or through whatever the rule may be, and they don't understand they have so much more to bring to the table. So I do focus a lot on refining the innovative problem-solving instinct, the understanding that every person can influence the experience. And by the way, not only does all of that benefit the patient and the family, but the employees become feel more important. They feel that they're heard and they feel respected, which is an engagement benefit. I love it, Diane. And I love all the things that you can measure out of just those two things around building instinct that you gave us. Speaking of your book, Unleashing the Chief Moment Officers, Reliably Giving the Gift of Exceptional Experiences. Can you tell our listeners and our audience a little bit about the book and why you even wrote it? Hmm. Well, as I was on that early journey, I was very, very blessed, you know, back in the beginning of before, you know, back when I started working on innovation in healthcare and patient experience, the definition of innovation in healthcare was technology assessment. If you went to any of the big health systems and they said, we have an innovation division, it was about what technology might we, might we buy? And that's, yeah. that was it. We were looking at it as a cultural, how do we activate 6,000 people to be more innovative? I was very blessed to study with Pine and Gilmore and Tom Peters and IDEO and Doblin at the time and learn from other industries on those inno visits. And I started to see that co-creation was the key and co-creation done well and respectfully and with energy and fun was the key. Um, And then I was asked to speak around the country at all these different healthcare meetings all over the place. 
And as I would do those speeches and I would talk to other health systems, I saw very quickly that they were not engaging their frontline staff, except for maybe once in a while, a little um, survey here and there. And so as I realized that people weren't getting the idea that imagine if 10,000 people in your organization saw themselves as a chief moment officer. And that they did, because a lot of times I'd meet with frontline staff and they'd say, you know, I'm not in charge of anything. I just do what I'm told. So disengaged, so unimportant is the attitude. It made me always think that they were like Eeyore walking around. And so once I realized that this was not being accepted, it was not well understood. That's why I wrote the book. Um, And then as I got deeper into that topic with healthcare, especially, I thought, my goodness, the power of having 10,000 chief moment officers well-prepared. Again, great stuff. And I love the concept of chief moment officers, Diane. And staying with that, because to me, chief moment officers is really about the heart. I'm always looking for the ways to put heart into business. And you teach a concept of extreme listening that looks at listening through the Japanese character, which includes five parts. Ears to hear, mind to think, eyes to see, undivided attention to focus, and heart to feel. And I love the inclusion of heart, obviously, giving empathy a place in this. Why is this approach to listening so important to you, especially in business and coming out of this pandemic? I think this is a really amazing concept. First of all, extreme listening in our industry, in the healthcare industry, is what we owe the patients. These are life and death situations many times. And if they're not, they could be. So when you've got so much at stake, listening with your ears and listening with one ear while you're working on your cell phone with the other hand, you know, is not what the person that may have cancer deserves. So at the bottom line here, this is the right thing to do. So that's the first thing. Second thing, from a practical standpoint, if we listen with our eyes and with our hearts and our full minds connected and our undivided attention, we get the chance of seeing the full picture. Uh, There's many reasons why patients don't tell us everything we need to know when they're in the hospital. And so by watching and listening and connecting the dots, and especially now that, you know, the healthcare frontline nurses, techs, especially doctors, you know, they are so distracted now. There are so many distractions in our industry that we can't take lightly and they absolutely contribute to errors. And so fully present, undivided attention has to be the core of an exceptional experience expectation because of all the, you know, technology and the pandemic and, you know, just there's just so many distractions. Well, Diane, I love that everything you do comes from your heart and leads with empathy. And I thank you so much again, Diane, and what a pleasure it is to have you in this segment talking what's happening in the healthcare space and the acceleration in the experience ecosystem. But it has come to that time, Diane, where we do this thing called the combustion questions. And it is two fun questions that we're going to ask you and just ask you to answer them from your heart, which I know you will do, and what comes to the top of your head. So, Diane, are you ready for your combustion questions? Hit me. All right, Diane, combustion question number one. What's your favorite type of pie? Uh, the first one that comes to mind, which is probably not the typical answer, is pizza pie. That is my favorite pie. But if I had to do a traditional pie, it'd be plain old wonderful apple. Well, you know, Diane, I am recording this particular segment sitting in Chicago. 
and I'm going to go enjoy some pie this evening. <laughs> I actually like what you said, pizza pie, especially now when pizza pie, is it New York style or Chicago style, Diane, that you prefer? Well, actually I'm from Philly, so it would be Philly style. Ah, Philly style. All right. Which is more of a thin, not really crispy thin, but more thin, not deep dish. All right. Awesome. Well, combustion question number two, Diane, would you rather be completely invisible for one day or be able to fly for one day? Hmm. I think I'd be, I'd rather fly for one day myself so I can go a bunch of places that would take me too long otherwise to get to. I think I would like to fly it too as well. Well, again, Diane, thank you so much for being on this and let everyone know how they can find you and reach out to you. The company that my, my consultancy is Xperers, E-X-P-E-E-R-S. And you can learn more about me and it at Xperers.net. Well, Diane, thank you so much. And um, we really look forward to looking at your upcoming work and what you're doing. Great. To wrap up this episode, we have an expert in the future of education. Our final guest is Michael Horn. Michael is a senior strategist at Guild Education. He speaks and writes about the future of education and works with a portfolio of education organizations to create a world in which all individuals can build their passion and fulfill their potential. He's written multiple books, sits on a few boards, and is the co-founder and a distinguished fellow of the Clayton Christensen Institute for Disruption Innovation. Welcome to the Combustion Chronicles, Michael. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, you co-host a podcast called Class Disrupted that you actually started um, last year in 2020 when the curtain was pulled back on education in America as schooling went virtual and parents said, wait, what is this? Yeah. Can you tell us about the podcast and what have you learned in unpacking issues in education on the show? Yeah, absolutely. I, you framed it well. The pandemic started... I think educators were willing to question first principles in ways that they haven't always been, perhaps. And parents certainly were because there was a whole bunch of questions, everything from childcare to social support for my child to, you know, are they healthy mentally right now to, oh my goodness, I'm watching what's going on. And there are a number of problems with what, what I'm seeing. And so we really wanted to take what was happening not just immediately during the pandemic, but over the last year and sort of pull it apart and say, hey, these are actually endemic of deeper problems with the education system that we could solve, right? That there's actually solutions and there are schools out there that are doing a much better job. And I'll say for me personally, it's been a cool journey because I, I learned a number of things. Everything from I used to assume, hey, you know, internet keeps getting cheaper year and year, year over year, devices keep getting cheaper, disruption keeps making that a more affordable market. But I've come to the conclusion, actually, we need to invest now. Every student needs access to high-speed internet and an internet-connected device at home because that's the world in which we're living. And if you don't have that today, you're sort of excluded. There are a few other things, but I'll just name one other, which is project-based learning, where, where you know, you're doing authentic projects from the real world in schools. I've always been intrigued, but also simultaneously a skeptic because I've seen so many projects gone bad in schools. But I would say I really learned a lot in the episode around that you know, good project-based learning students are getting robust feedback throughout the entire process and it concludes with a performance at the end. Yeah, I remember 
my project-based class, Humanities, with Mrs. Tanner. And I remember more from that class my senior year and other people's projects than I do about anything else. And, you know, Michael, when you and I first met, I was a chief innovation officer for a higher education institute. And I said then, and I still firmly believe this, that the educational system, the way that it's set up today, not just K through 12, but higher ed is the next bubble that is going to burst. And I think Mm -hmm. 2020 started to expose that. Do you agree? Do you still see that this industry is on this teetering point that if something doesn't change, it's almost going to self-implode? I, certainly that's the case for higher ed. Like I, I, I think my mentor, Clay Christensen, was famous for saying 50% of all institutions will fail over the next couple, you know, decade or whatever. I think the course that we're on, the price of these institutions, the cost structures, they keep getting more and more expensive. They're not connected to real world outcomes. People are questioning the ROI. I have friends who do not follow what I do that will constantly say to me, I don't know that college is worth it. Like really that price tag, even with a scholarship, even with the debt you might get or the degree or whatever else, like they're asking fundamental questions. And so I I do believe that for many institutions, if they don't fundamentally revisit their model, they're going to go off the cliff. And and I think it's 25% at least, you know, maybe over the next couple decades, but it's a lot of institutions that are, that are going to merge. They're going to close. The financial model will implode to your point. And it's just unsustainable. And in, in K-12, I think it's a little trickier, but I do think the pandemic fundamentally pulled the bandaid off. Yeah. And a lot of people all of a sudden said, Hey, wait a minute. Like I want school to provide childcare for my family and that's still important, but who the heck wants childcare only from eight to three, five days a week and not at all for summers? Like that's not actually a very good design. And so I think you're going to see a lot of entrepreneurial energy go into educators creating novel options. And yes, it's free, but they might just say it's not worth it, even if it's free and, and walk into new options and new configurations because they know that they can now. And, and I think it will be a significant minority that makes that move over the next year. So if that's the case, then we're going to redesign education. How can we do it in an inclusive way that collaborates with people who are often left out of this conversation then? Yeah, I, look, the biggest revelation I think I've had is this concept of moving from a zero-sum system to a positive-sum one. And, and what I mean by that is, in today's education system, for every child that wins, almost by definition, there's an, another child on the divide that loses, right? You know, I we, we grade on a curve. We compare people to other people when we grade projects, as opposed to an objective standard of mastery where we want everyone to successfully master core concepts as they're doing their learning. And the job of the teacher, the job of the system isn't to judge people or sort people or label people, but it's instead to support everyone to getting to mastery. And then seen in that system, all of a sudden it's a positive sum, right? The families for whom school sort of works today, and and I say sort of works because I I actually don't think it really works for anyone, (laughs) regardless of where you are. But for those who sort of works, right? You're you're from a well-off family, you're able to navigate it, et cetera. At least in moving to a positive sum game, they're not giving up something. And I think that's important because a lot of reforms get stopped because those with much to lose stop it in their tracks. And then the second piece of it is exactly what you said. Like we have to build with communities. We can't do two communities. And, And that means involving parents and students 
in the design process from the get-go and building something that works for their lives and that helps them succeed. And then the last piece I would say is don't assume it's going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. Like you might need schools within schools that operate very differently or schools that have very different philosophical choices, right? That support individuals and families that have different needs because we all do and and we should acknowledge that and, and embrace it and not segregate based on race or based on income, but instead based on what does this child need so that they can make progress in their lives. I love it. So let's jump a little bit to higher education and and organizations that you're actually connected with, you know, multi-city college. It's a virtual university model called the Minerva Project. And can Mm -hmm. you tell us more about this organization and how it may signal to the future of higher education as we've been talking about? Yeah, so Minerva is one of the uh, boards that I serve on. It's uh, really the first new liberal arts institution of the last 100 years uh, in the United States that serves incredibly talented students from around the world, regardless of means, who are able to attend. And so essentially how it works is that students co-live together in a variety of cities throughout their four years. So they might start in San Francisco, then Korea, Argentina, et cetera, and go around the world, but they're learning online throughout it. And the online environment is not like video lectures or something like that. It is the most active learning seminar. Like it beats the pants off any college seminar anyone's had at any college period. It's just, it's incredibly engaging and active. It's a little exhausting to be totally honest, but it's a really cool learning experience. And then you come out of this online environment, you're with your peers, and you're doing projects, you're embracing the community, you're starting businesses in the community, you're solving problems in the community, and really immersing yourself in a variety of different communities around the world that creates this really cool global cohort, in effect, from all over the world. And and I think it's like, I'm going to mess up the numbers, but it's like over 75% of the students are not from the United States. So this is Mm. a very different kind of institution that, as you said, it merges the best of online with place-based. It merges the best of a cohort with a really exciting learning experience that creates unbelievable insights and gains. And by the way, it's focused on building creativity, communication, critical thinking, because it's super precise about what the skills in all of those disciplines are. And then you practice it in domain after domain after domain. Because yeah, it's true that like thinking critically and you know, computer programming looks very different from another field. But it's also true that the the basic discipline is the same. And so as you jump into a new field and you're learning about it, you're learning the knowledge you have a method that actually transfers that you can embrace and 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 use to allow you to solve really important problems and create really cool things that make progress in the world. I want to throw a, a question out to you about really around heart. Where do you see the biggest needs in terms of humanizing the world of education, mm-hmm. whether it be K through 12 or higher ed? Yeah, it's such a good question. And I think that's actually one of the things that the pandemic has shown us, right? That Education is fundamentally a very social, emotional experience. I actually think almost every classroom in America right now in K-12 and higher ed has significant opportunity to remodel itself to make 
the relationship piece between the teacher and the students and the students and the students, right? We, we move away from that zero sum game. All of a sudden, students can support each other and have fun with each other. And there are certain schools that do that, like Montessori environments, I think, do this really well already. But I think there's an opportunity to reposition the majority of classroom environments across the world to put the relationships at the center and then leverage the technology for the knowledge and the skill building and things of that nature. But it's it's really all in a pursuit of freeing up time to make those human connections deeper, more meaningful, and more enduring. I remember how much time we used to have to have those social interactions, and they just don't have them anymore. And it's sad to me what's yeah. happening. So I love that. And Michael, we could go on and on, and we will have you back on again to talk more about blowing up education a little bit. But we've come to that point in this segment that we do our combustion questions. These are two fun questions um, that we're going to give you. I've not seen them. You've not heard them. But we just want your open response and honest response to them. So are you ready for your combustion questions? Let's do it. Uh, Awesome. So combustion question number one, Michael, if you were a transformer, what vehicle would you turn into? Oh boy. You know, I have always wanted to fly. And so it would be something that would allow me to do that. I I confess when I say that, and I'm blanking on the, um, one of the Decepticons uh, that, that that came about in the second version of uh, Transformers. So I, I wouldn't want to be evil, but but I would love to be able to fly. So some sort of uh, F-16 or something like that, I think would be awesome. I love it. Awesome. So combustion question number two, what do you think about waterfalls? <laughs> waterfalls are awesome. They're beautiful. They're, they're enticing. I, it's funny, we're planning a trip to... Uh, Hawaii. We were supposed to go to two years ago when the pandemic all hit. So we're, we're going to make it up and, and, and get there. We were talking about going uh, near Hilo on the big island. And there's such amazing waterfalls. If you just pull off the road at random junctures in Hawaii, in the tropical forest uh, areas, and you get some rainbows occasionally through them too, which, which, you know, who can hate rainbows? Well, I hope you get to experience it. So again, Michael, uh, what a pleasure to have you on um, the Combustion Chronicles with us. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Combustion Chronicles. Let's keep the conversation going by connecting on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. To learn more about the world of experience ecosystems, go to mofi.co, where you'll discover ideas and resources to help you ignite your own experience revolution. Be sure to check out my book, Kiss Your Dragons, Radical Relationships, Bold Heart Sets, and Changing the World, available now at Amazon. Then head over to shawnason.com to engage resources, a discussion guide, and information about everything from self-paced training to personal coaching. You can find this episode's recap at shawnason.com. We know you lead a busy life, so if you're driving, exercising, or maybe just blowing your own shit up, don't worry. We've already taken the notes for you. Each recap is filled with exclusive guest information, episode themes, quotes, resources, and more. And remember, please subscribe, rate, and review. As always, stay safe and be well.